25. And uh, just remember that this is the Word of God. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't, do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried about, uh, is it, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Thanks, Chili. I feel so short now. There we go. It's more like it. Um, I'm only five. I say I'm 5'10", but I think I'm 5'9". So let's just say 5'10", for argument's sake. That's not to do the sermon. My name's James. Welcome to Established Church. Um, if this is your first time, I'd love to meet you after. We're so glad that you're here. We've got some familiar faces, people visiting who've been a part of our church before. And it's always really precious gathering together on a Sunday. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think far too often I take it for granted um, that we get to do this, that we get to gather, sit under God's Word, we get to encourage one another, build one another up, um, and that the, the Word of God's actually living and active, and that it, it does shape us. So I'm gonna, before we get into singleness, I'm just going to pray that the Word does that, that He gives us ears to hear, and that we can be shaped by His Word. So if you want to bow your heads to me, we'll pray. The psalmist writes, the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, more than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. Father, we pray that today you can help us see that your word is good, um, that it is, it is sweet, it is precious. 
That is your living and active word that shapes us, that it guides us, that instructs us how to live our lives. Father, we pray today that you shape us by it. Help us be in awe of who you are. Father, help me preach today your word that you've given to us. And Father, we pray that you work powerfully through it today by your spirit, that you shape us for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name now. Amen. I don't know if you guys know this, but we're shaped by what sociologists call a cultural script, right? A cultural script is kind of the things that we find that give our society value and meaning and purpose and kind of guidelines for how we're to live our lives and function in the world. They're the kind of practices and norms that our culture lives by. And in the West, our cultural script is largely shaped by media, like the media we consume. Um, like whether it's movies, books, songs, TV, art, whatever it looks like. Like it's those little things that shape us and kind of dictate how we live our lives and what society uses normal. And I was doing research, as I do for a sermon, by watching Netflix. Um, it's the only way to do it, right? Um, and I was kind of just going through the trending section of Netflix. And it doesn't take long to go through the trend uh, section of Netflix to see the kind of things that shape us as a society. And one of the things that kind of popped up was, I don't know how it's still popular now, it's still trending, I don't know what it is, but um, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, I don't know if you've seen that movie, right? I saw it ages ago, I can hardly remember it. Um, but I was like, really, this is still popular? Is this still around? Um, the whole premise of the movie is it's a group of friends that think their friend who is 40 years old and hasn't had sex yet is somehow lacking in life. Like, like he, he's somehow lacking fulfillment. And that, as good friends do, like they need to find him someone that he can have sex with to find fulfillment and not be deemed as weird. And that's the, the kind of whole premise of the movie. Um, like another popular movie that was on Netflix was Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. I'll be honest with you, I haven't, but I know the line. Right, there's a line towards the end of the movie. I've heard it a million times. It's always referenced. Um, he kind of looks lovingly into the woman's eyes. And he says the line, you complete me. And that's telling us that we need someone else to complete us, to fulfill us. So the four-year-old version that tells us you need a sexual experience to be um, fulfilled. You have the whole Jerry Maguire, you need someone to complete you. And I won't name the TV show. There's a TV show on TV. It's currently, it's hugely popular. I think it's on Channel 7. Oh, it's Channel 10, not Channel 7. Um, and it kind of centers around a group of women living in a house where they're kind of competing for a relationship with someone. Where they, they kind of, they do these games. They kind of compete with like, the games have nothing to do with relationships, by the way. Um, but the whole point is they need to get to the end of it to, to beat the other girls out, to, to be with this dreamy scientist or whatever it is this season. Probably gave it away. Like that, that's telling us, even subconsciously as a culture, that you need someone, that you need to compete, you need to work hard to find someone, even if it means you're going on national TV and embarrassing yourself or being who you not really are. Like, well, I'm not saying these movies and TV shows are bad in themselves. They might not be helpful, but I don't think they're evil in themselves. They do kind of push this cultural script. And that cultural script is, it's not okay to be single. That if you're single, there's something gone wrong. That you're somehow missing out on full, complete fulfillment. And this isn't something that we just see outside of the church and media on Netflix. But this is something that we see within the church. We see... 
people view singleness as maybe less or different or something that they need to escape. And over the past three weeks, we've been looking at, as a church family, how the gospel shapes how we view things like sexuality and sexual immorality. Um, last week, we looked at marriage, and this week, we're, we're looking at singleness. How the gospel shapes singleness. I want to start by saying three things before we get into this passage. Three kind of little qualifiers before we get stuck into it. The first is, I recognize that this topic is complex. This is a very complex topic. I can, and talking to people, I, I've, I, this is probably one of the longest sermons I've ever spent writing and reading about widely. Like I've been talking to people within our church family who are single or who have been single for extended periods of time. I've been talking to friends who are outside our church family about their experiences. And the one thing that comes up time and time and time again, that this is a complex issue. And for some of us, it brings up maybe past struggles or past hurts. Maybe for some of us, it brings up current struggles and current hurts. But we're going to be looking at singleness. And singleness is complex because across the board, it looks different for different people. What it looks like for someone who's in their 20s, it looks different for someone who's in their 30s or 40s. What it looks like for someone who's a woman, looks like it, it could look different for someone who's a male. So it's, it's complex, it's wide. Secondly, this topic affects every single person in, this, like in our church family. One, because as a church family, we need to be seeking how we can love each other, build one another up, how we can be an authentic community, like we talk about what we want to be like as a church. But two, and it's the reality, is that even if you're here today and you're married, a day is coming where you're going to be single again. It's very, it's extremely rare that two people die at the same, two spouses or a spouse dies at the same time as you. So the reality is, it affects all of us. If there is a day coming where you'll probably be single again, and you're going to have to wrestle with it again, and it's going to look different then. It affects all of us, whether it, you're married now or you're single. This is for all of us. And thirdly, this, to- this sermon is not a topical sermon. I just want to highlight that before we get into it. I'm not looking at singleness across the, bo- like the whole topic and what it looks like across the whole Bible. Well, I'm preaching this passage. I'm looking at what Paul is saying to us today. Like this sermon isn't meant to cover everything. But the purpose of this sermon is, is to reorientate our hearts as marrieds, as singles, around the Word of God and how it says we can live out our lives in the different stages that our lives may be in as a diverse community, but particularly singleness. And Paul's big idea of the whole passage is that marriage is good and singleness is good. They're both a gift from God that he's given us to build up the church, to love and serve one another, and to bring glory to his name. So that's what, that's what Paul's highlighting throughout this whole passage. Marriage is good. Singleness is good. They're both gifts from God. Use them both to, to bless the church and to bring glory to God. That's, that's simply what he's trying to say here. And the roadmap for this afternoon is we'll briefly look at the kind of gift from singleness from um, last week's passage. And then we'll kind of untangle some, maybe some tricky things in this passage that you might have questions about on initial reading. And then I'll kind of look at the reason that Paul gives for to stay single or the, the good things about being single and what that looks like for us as a church family. That's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Um, but before we look at the, the passage that was read out, I just want to quickly jump back to chapter 7, verse 7. This is what Lee, um, this is from last week's sermon. You have a Bible, open it up. 
It's on the screen as well. This is what Paul says. He goes, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and one has, that, has another. So what Paul is saying here, when he says, I wish that you were as I am, Paul is not saying that I wish you were a Jew from Tartarus in the first century. Like Paul is saying, I wish everyone was like me, single. So what Paul is doing here is that he's kind of reframing singleness in the Bible, what people thought about singleness in the Bible. So we, we see the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, singleness was um, kind of seen as a curse. So the norm back in the Old Testament was you get married, you have kids, and then you kind of look back, um, and it's like if you didn't have kids, maybe you had a curse, maybe you weren't blessed by God. That's what the Old Testament would say. But the New Testament would say, yeah, marriage is still the norm. But singleness is good, and it's a gift from God. That's what kind of Paul's doing to reframe it. He's trying to take people from what they think about singleness and trying to say what is the reality about singleness in light of the gospel. And he, he says in his passage that there's, there's real advantages to being single. Now, the bottom line is whatever your relationship status is, whether you're, you're married, you're single, it's a gift from God. That's what he's saying. He's saying marriage is a gift from God in the same way that being single is a gift from God. They're both graces from God given to us. And if we're honest, you might hear that. You might be here today and you might hear that. You might hear, oh, singleness is a gift. You know, like, really? Like, is it really, though? Like, you might think about it as, like, a gift that, like, a friend, like, a really crappy gift that your friend gives you. Where, like, you pretend you really like it on the outside, but deep down, you're like, What's, what, like what am I going to use this for? You might sell it or pass on to someone else. Like, it's that type of gift. I thought, maybe you think that. And that's a real place to be in. You pretend you're so to it, but really deep down, it, it, it sucks. That's not a gift I want. And it's important to know that when Paul uses the word gift here, he uses it in the same way that he uses the word gift when talking about spiritual gifts um, later in 1 Corinthians. We'll tackle this in a few weeks, but I'll briefly touch on it now. Um, like God gives his people gifts to build up his church and to glorify his name. And when he says gift here, that, that same word for gift is in the future when he uses it later in the passage. And he says that, says that not in the gift in the sense of this is for you and your own personal fulfillment gift. It's not that type of gift. That's what we think when we hear gift. It's not about, sense of, it's not about having a sense of individual purpose and fulfillment. When Paul says the gift of singleness... He's talking about the gift of singleness as something that's used to, to bless his church, to glorify his name. He's not saying that the gift of singleness is being content, being completely at peace, not struggling with it, not wrestling with it at all. Like, he doesn't say that. It's not about having this kind of superhuman contentness with being single. But it's about having struggles. But Paul says, I'm sorry, Paul is, Paul is saying that marriage is a gift, singleness is a gift. Use them to build up his church and glorify his name. That's what he means by the gift of singleness. And that kind of helps us frame where we're going in this passage. So we're going to step back into the passage that we're, we're looking at this week. Um, a bit of context to why, before we kind of outline why singleness is good. Um, it's important to understand the context of what's happening in this church. This is a jacked up church. Like this is 
like a lot of churches in the world, but there's, there's tricky situations going on in Corinth. Um, we see in verse 25 of chapter 7, Paul starts by addressing virgins. Some of your translations might say betrothed. I think that's kind of better translation. He's talking about those of people who are engaged, essentially. He's saying those of you who are engaged. And in the context of the first century, being betrothed was a big deal, right? Like me, me and my wife, Bree, we had a three-month engagement, right? We, we, we banged it out. It was quick. Betrothal here was like a year-long process. You didn't really see each other at times much. It was kind of arranged. They kind of knew what was happening. And Paul is saying here, because what was happening in the church here, that people wanted to break with their engagements. People were working out ways to get out of it, essentially. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't know if you picked up in this passage when it was read out, but Paul has kind of framed this argument a bit differently. The past two weeks, he's been using language that kind of frames it as a moral argument. When we talked about sexual morality and marriage and divorce. And now he's kind of changed it from that to a wisdom one, one of judgment. And we see that in verse 25 when he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment. He goes, I've got no command on this, but here's, in my wisdom, this is what I think you should do. And he said again in verse, seven, uh, verse 40, sorry, he goes, in my judgment. Like we've, we've entered the realm of not kind of right and wrong, kind of black and white. We've kind of stepped out of that to a realm of kind of just wisdom, kind of practical wisdom that he's giving us. Useful, wise wisdom. The second thing is that Paul says, uh, what Paul said about singleness um, is affected by what, how, like what he calls in verse 26 a present crisis. Like, what, what is the present crisis? Like, when I was reading this, I'm like, what is this present crisis? And the answer is, we don't know. Um, I, I looked around, people, like, no one really knows exactly what it is. Um, most people think that it was a famine that was happening at the time um, in Corinth. You kind of get that from Acts, or you look at the rest of kind of history around that time. There was a, a big famine they were dealing with. It's also probably the persecution they were facing. They were facing external pressure. The church was young, new. Christians were dying for their faith. So the present crisis probably fits into one of those two things. Which leads Paul's advice in verse 26. And this is essentially what he's saying in verse 26. This is the James Air paraphrase, but I think it's what he's saying. He goes, don't make any major life changes in this time. Because of the present crisis, remain as you are. And that's why Paul says in verse 28, those who are married will face many troubles in this life. Because getting married is taking on another kind of role of responsibility. It's different, but it's, just, it, it's a different role. It's not any less or more, but it, it's a different role. And it adds to a kind of complex emotional dynamic and another level of commitment. The passage is saying at a time where it's very likely that one of you is going to die, in a time where contraception wasn't really a thing, that if you got married, the chances are you're having a, pre- a kid pretty soon after. And saying in a time where your spouse would die soon after being married, in a time where your child could die pretty soon after being born, where there's this kind of present crisis happening around you, maybe take the wisdom judgment and don't get married. Maybe put a hold on it. This is the way I thought about it, right? Think about if the Titanic was sinking. That's what Paul's saying. He goes, if the Titanic's sinking and you're running across the, the sloping deck, trying to get to a lifeboat, that's not the time to drop down on one knee and propose, right? That's kind of what he's saying. Don't, in this kind of crisis moment, don't do that. 
think. Kind of put in your godly wisdom hat, be sensible, and think. And then kind of Paul branches out from the kind of current contextual crisis that they were facing to kind of more broad wisdom um, for why singleness is good, which is the kind of second point, why singleness is good. And Paul gives two reasons in this passage why it's good. First, he says this, says this world is passing away. Look at verse 29 to 31 with me. It says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if they, it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if it not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Paul's kind of overstating his case here. Paul's not saying, if you're married and you have friends come over, hide your spouse. He's not saying, pretend you're not. If you're married now, pretend you're not married. And it's kind of, he's being silly. He's being Paul. Um, he's, he's blowing it out um, to kind of make a point. And the point is, this world is not your home. This world is not our home. So don't invest everything here. Don't make this world something that's not meant to be. Don't be obsessed with your, your spouse. Don't mourn your current situation as if though you have no hope in the future. But this world is not our home. He's saying in the grand scheme of eternity, that this world is it's a snap. We're not here long. This world is not our home. One theologian put it this way. The quote should jump up on the screen. They say, Paul does not argue the end might come tomorrow with its terrible afflictions. Therefore, do not get married. He argues instead, the end has broken into the present and it requires a re-evaluation of all that we do in a world that is already on its last legs. But this is Paul's way of trying to reorientate our hearts and mind around eternity. Not just the case of what's seen and present now. Not just what's in this temporary world. But what's in eternity? Paul's reminding us that there's a future that we're closer to right now than we've ever been before. And we need to reorientate our hearts around that future. We need to live for that future hope. We need to live as, not as we're citizens of this world, but more importantly, as citizens of heaven. That we're, we're, we're closer now than we've ever been before. This is the craziest thought. We're closer now than we've ever been before to the day that Christ returns, the coming of his kingdom without bounds, experiencing that final wedding supper, place where we'll be more alive now or then than we are now. There'll be no more marriage. We will all be united with Christ, all united together as a church. And we're closer now than we've ever been before. Like this passage is wanting us to draw, out, draw us out from, from looking at this world and our present circumstances as though this was it. This passage wants us to focus on the greater reality that is to come. Not our career, not our marriage, not our singleness, but the greater reality that's to come. Like Paul is warning us in this passage of the danger 
of when you marry that you, you invest more in this world than we should. And you desire to be more comfortable in this world than you should be. And we think, like, <laughs> this is what we see. We see when people get married, we think that people kind of want to settle down, get their forever home. Um, this isn't just uh, an issue that's isolated to people who are married. But Paul is saying here that particularly it can be acute for those who are married, that we, we want what our parents had. This is, this is the culture that we live in. We want what our parents had. We want the house, we want the backyard, we want the holidays, we want the, the SUV. Like, we, we want what they've had. Or there's a danger, it's a horrible temptation, that when people get married, they think that they've arrived, that they've made it, that marriage is some sort of goal that they've obtained, some achievement that they've ticked off. Have you ever seen the movie um, Zoolander? Has anyone seen that? Put your hand up if you've seen Zoolander. Good, because this won't make sense to you otherwise. Um, <laughs> this is part of the movie, right? Derek Zoolander. Um, he's a kind of self-righteous model, very up himself, um, a bit oblivious to the world. That's okay. Um, but they kind of build a, a, a school for him or a center of learning, they call it, for, for Derek Zoolander um, in his honor. And there's this kind of scene where they, they present it to him. And it's the, the kind of the model of it, the little model for it. Um, I'll show you the video, but I'll get too distracted. Um, they make the model for him, and they, they show it to him, and he, he kind of stands there and looks at the, the model exactly like that he does in that photo. And you see him staring at it, and it's this kind of pause, and Will Farrell's in it, and they're kind of looking at him, and he just stands up, he's like, what is this? And they're, they're shocked. And he points at it, and he says, it's a brilliant line, it's, it's poetry. He goes, what is this? A center for ants, and he kind of points at it, picks it up, throws it on the ground, and then when it's on the ground, he says, it needs to be at least three times bigger than this. Because the thing is, he's, seeing the, he's thinking that the model is the actual thing. He's mistaking the model for the reality that is to come, the school. And far too often, people do this in marriage. Like, we, we think that marriage is it's it. We've arrived when you get there, that, that we've made it. But the reality is, it's, it's just part of the model, pointing us to the, the future wedding banquet. The future day when we'll see Jesus face to face. It's pointing to our relationship, the only relationship that can do that, which is our relationship with Jesus, that can fully fulfill us. And Paul's saying that it's just the model. Marriage is the model. It's not the full thing. Don't live as it's the full thing. Don't grieve thinking that you're missing out on the full thing because the full thing's coming. Like this world is passing away. This isn't all there is. In elevating singleness, Paul is, he isn't saying that marriage isn't important, but he is saying, he's, he's, kind of, he's trying to dethrone marriage. He's not devaluing it, he's dethroning it. Saying marriage isn't the ultimate thing. God is on the throne, not marriage. Marriage is just one way out of many of serving him. Again, he's not devaluing it. Paul says marriage is good. It's a good gift from God. But he's dethroning it. He's saying singleness is good. It's a good gift from God. And the second reason, um, whilst uh, Paul says singleness is good, he says that marriage can bring extra concerns. I see this in verse 32 onwards. He said, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his, interested, his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, 
But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your, uh, for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. I just want to quickly clear up this kind of misconception that people have. and I think they kind of pull it from this passage. There's this idea that men and women who are single have more time and more money to serve God with. You see it in churches where um, people, like this, oh, the singles, will, they'll do it. Oh, they've got more time, they've got more money to do these types of things. But the reality is, that's not the case. More often than not, particularly in our society, people who are single have less time and less money. There's the reality of one income, and there's also the reality of, like, uh, I'll use Sydney as the example. A lot of young professionals, they get home from work, they go to work maybe 7 a.m., get home maybe 7 p.m. after the train trip um, into the city. And after 7 p.m., it's not prime time to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships on a weeknight. Like, it's hard. So the reality is, people who are single don't have, always have more time and more money. The opposite is actually true. But what this passage is saying that those who are single don't have the same divided attention as those who might be married might have. I, as a married man, um, I have a wife that I need to love and tend to and care for. I have anxieties surrounding my marriage and my relationship that I need to think about. When you have kids, that dynamic gets put into it even more. You have your children to, to love and take care of and the anxiety is there. Paul's not saying that those who are single don't have deep and meaningful friendships where they have that same concern. But he is saying that it, it is different when you're married, that you do have that divided attention at times. Like, yes, we're all called to be devoted to our friends and, and to care for our biological families, but it's a different devotion that the Bible demands of those who are married for their spouse. There's a, there's a other le- uh, element of discipleship and care and love and self-sacrifice that happens in marriage, or should happen in marriage. And Paul says here that the great advantage of singleness, one of the good things about singleness, is that you have an undivided mind and heart. Like they have, uh, people who are, who are in singleness are freed up to serve the Lord and to devote themselves more fully to the Lord, not get caught up in the struggles and anxieties that being married and having a family can bring. So uh, as we finish up, I just want to talk about like, what this passage firstly means for those in our church family who are single and then what it means for those in our church family who are married and then we'll kind of wrap it up with all of us together um, as one big family. First of the singles. So if you're a single man or woman at established church, this passage is calling you to serve, to serve us, to serve our church, to step out and lead us. I think there's, a, there's this unhelpful thing in Christian culture at large where there's this idea that to be most effective in ministry or to be most effective in serving and building up God's kingdom that you need to be married. And I think that it is categorically untrue. And I think this passage says that. I think the Bible says that. The church history is littered with single men and women who did great things for the kingdom of God. Can we just name a few? We see Ruth. In the Old Testament, we see Jeremiah, we see Joseph, we see ne- um, Nehemiah, we see John the Baptist, we see in this passage Paul, we see the ultimate example in Jesus. Like we've seen this throughout our church, even our established church. 
up until last year, over half our staff team was made up of people who were single, who served our church community, who even though they had many things on, most people doing many jobs at once, they, they poured their heart out and served our church. I think it's safe to say that the church wouldn't be where it is at today if it wasn't for the service of people who are single. But the thing is, this passage is calling you to lead us, to step out and lead. Don't wait. Don't think that you'd be more effective if, insert, this happened. This is the invitation, this passage, to lead. If God's given you a passion, a desire for a ministry, if he's given you gifts, please use them. Don't wait. Step out and serve. If you, want to, if you want to help start a ministry, start, help, like, come talk to us. If you want to be serving in a different way, please, we'd love that. This is an invitation. You don't need a spouse to be effective for God's kingdom. If anything, Paul's kind of arguing that it's, it's harder in some ways. Secondly, something that came up time and time again in my preparation for this um, in talking to people, in reading, is that singles need to practice healthy self-care. I'm not talking about getting a gym membership or having a spa day or whatever it is. I'm talking about, as human beings, we're going to run into seasons where life's hard, where it's really difficult. We just feel like you can't do it alone. We feel like you're drowning. And you might feel like that because you're single that you don't have anyone. And that is so untrue. Like our, our church family wants to love one another and build one another up. I don't go it alone. Don't go this life alone. I put your hand up. Talk to people within our church family. The diversity of life stages that we're in. Take good care of yourself. Be be willing and eager to ask for help when you need it. Take good care of your spirit. Take good care of your soul. Practice really healthy self-care. And the third thing is, you need to learn emotionally healthy skills to bond with others. This is something that I've struggled with in my own life in the past. And what I'm saying is that while deep relationships can be cultivating, they can be life-giving, there's also times when they become quite... Um, unhealthy, quite, become quite broken or codependent. This can become a challenge, particularly when it comes to the opposite sex. There's this thing that can happen where it, it drifts far too into the kind of weirdly um, yeah, codependent or sexual area in life that's really unhelpful, um, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But like it, one of the things is, as, as singles in our church family, it's developing emotionally healthy skills to grow in your relationships and part of this is not just having your person, one person who you go to for everything or that you rely on the most. I think part of it is having the diverse nature of our church family, um, different life stages that we're at, going to each other and um, seeking advice from people who aren't the same position of life that you're in, but different people in seasons. And this, this is the same for everyone in our church. We need to allow each other to speak into each other's lives, to build one another up, 
to encourage one another and do that in a way that's healthy and God-glorifying. Allow each other to walk alongside each other. And I think this is particularly true when it comes to singleness. And quickly for the marrieds, which makes up a large chunk of our church family. Don't fall into the trap of making marriage something that it's not. Don't make marriage into this silver bullet where it fixes all your problems or it fixes loneliness or um, struggles with sexual desires. Because we know that's not true. Don't live behind this veneer that marriage is always easy and awesome. Uh, be honest with people in our church family who aren't married about the struggles of marriage. Open your lives up to each other. Show that marriage isn't a silver bullet, that it's hard, that it comes with these anxieties that Paul's talking about in this passage. Like, celebrate marriage as a good gift from God, but don't put it on a throne. Don't treat people in our church family who aren't married as second-class citizens. Don't just group around people who are at the same life stage as you. Value marriage, but don't make it something that's not. Don't push the idea that marriage is this thing that we need to put in a throne when it's really good, like Paul says, and should be really valued, but it's not the ultimate thing. Singleness is a good gift as much as marriage is a good gift. Remember that your, your family isn't just your spouse or your kids, but the whole church family. Jesus says this himself. He goes, Who are my brothers and sisters? And who is my mother? It is not those who belong to my father. Jesus here, he's reorientating our soul around what the family unit really is. It's all of us together as one church family. It's, it's viewing the church family as that. We use the word family a lot to establish church. I think we need to step into the reality of that. That's something that's true. That's what believers are. That's what we are. It's not a social gathering. and just hanging out for the sake of it. So just because of social proximity, but we believe that we are a family that God's brought here in this place, in Cronulla. So it's living as that. It's reorientating our church family as our family unit. Yes, you care for your wife or um, husband. Yes, you care for your children. But they're not it. We're, we're a diverse family. That's what I end up, and I think this is for all of us. I, I don't think this sounds overly idealistic or overly romantic, when I say this, but I think there should be no lonely people at established church. Like I think that should be the goal. I think we need to not just group up with the people who are like us, same age or stage, but there should be no lonely people in our church family. And to the best of our ability, we need to learn to open up our homes, our lives to each other, learning from each other the highs and lows learning what the struggles are like for those who are single in our church family. Don't just assume. Learning from those who are married in our family. Again, don't just assume what you know the struggles are. It's complex. We need to learn from one another, invest in one another, be in each other's lives. And this is something that came up time and time again as I say to people, particularly in our church family, who are single, is that, that a Salvation Church does this pretty well. Um, we've, I've had people say to me, they've been in churches in the past where they found it really hard being single. 
And a lot of these cultural things I spoke about have been in their face and they have been felt like they've been viewed as uh, different or second-class citizens or the church isn't for them um, socially. But what time, came up time and time again is little stories of people having each other over for dinner regularly or people speaking to, to each other's lives, whether it's people who are married and single or vice versa. Um, yeah. It's uh, one of the things that comes time and time again is just this kind of beautiful picture of a life that is shaped by the gospel. Like I think this is something that we actually do quite well. I think it's going to get harder. God willing, as we grow, as we have more people come to our church family, different life stages, different ages, it's going to get harder. And like I said, I don't think it's idealistic to say that there should be no lonely people at this church to the best of our ability. Yes, we're going to fail. Yes, we're going to fall short. Empowered by a spirit, I think that's what it should be aiming for. We should be modelling what the, a life shaped by the gospel looks like. What singleness, marriage, sex, um, sexual immorality, how the gospel shines a light on that and um, forgives that. That's what we should be aiming for as a church family, being that beautiful picture. I just want to finish by reading uh, a quote by a guy with the best name on earth, Preston Sprinkle. Um, what a name. Um, this, this is kind of paraphrased, um, but I think he sums up so well. So he says about singleness. He says, The good news about a single saviour who provides abundant life for all those who die with him. Jesus didn't view his celibacy as a no, no to joy, no to sex, no to intimacy, but rather he viewed it as a life-giving yes, yes to relationships, yes to friends, yes to serving others, and yes to enjoying life to the fullest. Singleness isn't something where you're a second-class citizen. You are not less fulfilled because you don't have a, a wife or a husband. And our church needs you. We need you to step in. Don't wait. And we're thankful for you. We th- you make our church a better place. And we need, as a church family, to be living lives shaped by the gospel. Not just for a three-part sermon, but our whole lives. I'm going to pray to that end. Father, we give thanks that you're a good God. That while it feels at times that life isn't going to plan, or this isn't how we expect our life to turn out. Father, we thank you that you're good that you would love us and care for us. Father, thank you that we have a, a future hope to look forward to. Father, we pray for those of us in our church family who are struggling with marriage. Thank you that that's a reality, that we have a future hope to look forward to. There's going to be no more brokenness. Father, we pray for those in our family who struggle with singleness. Thank you that we have a future hope. Father, thank you that Jesus, as a single man, was more human than we'll ever be. Thank you that we don't need um, what society and the cultural script around us tells us we need to be complete. But, Father, we know we need you. Father, help us run to you. Help us look for our fulfillment in you. Father, I pray for the singles in our church family. We pray that you strengthen them and embolden them and use, help them use the gifts that you've given them to build our church, to glorify your name. Father, to be the leaders to be pushing the church around the world 
further. Father, help them know that there's a place in our church family. Thank you that the insights you've given them, um, thank you for the gifts you've given them. Father, help us all know that this place is not our home. Help us look to that reality that we're closer than we've ever been to you coming back. And Father, we pray that you help us be a church where there is no lonely people. A church that doesn't just say we're a family, but we live like it. And thank you for the little evidences of your grace and the little beautiful gospel picture we've seen of the people in our church family opening up their homes and inviting people in to see the messiness and the brokenness of each other's lives. Father, we pray for that in uh, in Jesus' precious and beautiful name. Amen. We're going to have a three-minute break, strictly three minutes. Um, in this time, this is a time where we get to connect with one. Uh, sorry, the reason I'm having a break is we're having a Q&R after this, a time where we're going to kind of answer some questions from the past three sermons um, that you guys submitted throughout the week. But over this time, uh, we'd love it if you connected with one another. Um, there's a connect table at the back where there's a connect card, so maybe you're new here. We'd lo- invite, love it to invite you to fill one out. Um, just so we know that you're here, uh, we might follow up and just say hello throughout the week via email or something. Um, but we're going to do that for three minutes. I'm saying three minutes. Don't go far away. Um, do not leave. Don't not run away. Um, and we'll do that for a little while. Then we'll sing another song, a couple songs, then we'll have food. But three minutes, and we'll be back up. Hello. Condenser responses to the kind of big things people ask because we, we're all like-minded and ask very similar things. Uh, I just want to kind of just outline real quick just some things going forward with this kind of Q&R. The reason I said Q&R, um, not Q&A, a few people ask me that, because um, we, we're not going to pretend that we know all the answers or that there's one definitive answer to every little thing. Um, like I said in my sermon, these are very complex um, topics um, that affect us in different ways. Um, so we're just going to in the staff team's wisdom, just share what they can from, from the Bible and their own experience. Um, and the other thing is, we haven't got long, right? We have, like, so the answers are going to be quite short. Um, they can't answer everything and kind of tackle every topic. But this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation. Uh, we want this to be something that we keep talking about as a church family. So if anything's said, um, feel free to go talk to any of um, these guys and girls about anything they've said or you want to know more or maybe that's something that resonates with you and you want to kind of follow that up, please do. Um, they'll love that. Um, but I'm just going to get stuck into it. So the first question um, that kind of came up throughout the week was um, to do with singleness, uh, which I'll throw to, to Tim and Meg for. Um, so the question was, how do you live with the challenges as a Christian with unwanted singleness? So how do you live, like maybe I mentioned as a, singleness is a gift and I said maybe you don't want that. How do you live with that? How do you live that out? Um, so I think 
We, like James mentioned, James kind of wrapped this up very neatly for us, but lots of you will know that singleness and, and the depth of emotion that lots of people feel around it is, is a far more complex um, issues. So there's all kinds of shades of grey um, and it's, it can be a bit of a roller coaster. the way that different people um, go through different stages of singleness in life. Um, so I know for me it's, it's something that I've struggled with at different stages, um, but as someone who's still only 26, it's very different for me to think about my singleness than it, say, would be for someone who's, who's older than, than that. Um, it's very different for um, men and women, like James said, um, to think about those things. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing um, for me as I think about singleness and how to actually um, turn that into a joy um, in your life is actually um, bringing it back to the gospel and bringing it back to um, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Um, I think we have a really... Um, a really strong way of um, telling ourselves these stories and narratives that aren't always true. Um, and in a world where singleness is is sometimes looked upon negatively, um, we need to be people who are constantly um, filling up on God's word. Um, I think we need to learn how to pray well. I think often um, struggling with singleness is something that we don't bring to God. It's something that we kind of push away into a little corner and have moments of struggling with um, more than others. Um, but the Psalms, I think, teach us really beautifully how to lament and how to actually pour out our hearts before God. Um, so in Psalm 42, um, David pours out his heart and talks about his soul thirsting for God, um, tears being his food day and night. So I think mm. learning that it's actually that's actually a really good thing um, to pour out our hearts to God, even in those really hard moments um, when we don't know what to do. Um, and then also investing into community, um, because I think pouring it out to God, but also pouring it out to people, which I think you had something to say on, Tim. Yeah, yeah, James alluded to this in his talk as well. Um, I would say, yeah, community is huge. Like, I think we need to have a bit more of an expanded view on what intimacy actually looks like, because sometimes we just think it's, you know, sexual intimacy. Whereas I think you can actually be incredibly close um, with members of the op opposite sex, as well as people who are your friends as well, who are, who are the same sex. Um, that's basically most types of people, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think you can have intimacy in really profound ways. Um, community is a funny thing, though, because make sure your community isn't full of buttheads. And, and, and what, I mean by, what I mean by that is, like, sometimes people can be really unhelpful in, in the things they say and the feedback they give, particularly in terms of relationships and stuff like that. So I think you can be selective in who you engage with, but um, intimacy is so important. Um, there is good intimacy, as James was saying, and there's unhelpful intimacy, but I think that's a huge, huge thing in terms of coming to terms with singleness. I always come back to um, looking at the early church in Acts 4 and the way that they shared everything that they have. Um, like you said, I think our church does it really well. I think um, we're really good at looking out for people in different life stages to us and thinking about how we can have community um, with people who are in different, um, maybe, maybe um, stages of life. Um, so I'm not going to name names, but there's people in this church who, who have invited me over for dinner every week mm. um, as a recurring thing um, because they, they want me to... They, we literally call it family dinner because they want me to be a part mm. of their family. Mm. And so I think as a community, knowing that singles don't only have to hang out with singles and marrieds don't only have to hang out with marrieds, then actually being really conscious and intentional about looking outside of that. 
Thanks, bud. But last night I was in like a 20-person message feed with Arsenal supporters, like football supporters. <laughs> and I was sitting there by the real family. football game, but I just felt included. And the person who did, I'm not going to look at him because he's going to get awkward. But um, it's just little things like that actually include you and make you feel like you're part of the family. So. Um, I didn't tell you why I was about this question. We're, already, we're at that stage, we're already gone off the tubes. Because um, <laughs> I mentioned in my sermon about like the gifts and lessons serving. And something that I think you guys do very well um, in our church family. Thanks. It's all right. Um, here's, can you just speak into that a bit? Like, I mentioned like what it means to serve as someone who's single. Can you just speak about maybe the challenges and the, the freedoms that might come with that, um, with being yeah, 30s and 20s in ministry? Do I go first? Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so being single has given me heaps of opportunities. Um, particularly in my formal job where I was full-time, like I would be out three or four nights a week, and that's not a bad thing, but I, I don't think I could do that if I had kids and um, if I had a wife, I just don't think I could. Plus just even like I've done some different things, I've visited some countries which are a little bit shonky, um, and I don't have to worry that if something happens, so I've been in the Middle East and I've visited people over there, and if something happens, I don't have to worry that I'm leaving behind kids and, and family and stuff like that. So it does, it really does free you in a lot of ways. And I can really resonate with what James was saying. I think you were saying undivided, was that the word you used? Yeah, undivided devotion. Yeah, undivided devotion. I think that's a, that's a big thing. So. I think um, we were reflecting on this in GC um, this week on the way that being single means, um, like, of course, under God. But your time is your own. Your bank balance is your own. Your, um, like, the decisions you make, you make on your own. And that's the kind of thing that, that, for married people is much more complex. Um, there are so many, not to mention when kids then become involved, but when you're single, um, you wanna do that prayerfully and with the help of your community, but actually it's, it's, a, like it's a real privilege to be able to do that and to be able to spend your time in different ways. And for me, that's often looked like, you know, going out to a different person's house for dinner each night or going out with different people in a way that really helps build community um, and in a way that actually is really hopefully and prayerfully seeking after God's kingdom and building that here. Yeah. That's really good. Um, so last week, for those maybe this is your first time visiting, we've, we've covered kind of sexual morality, what that looks like. And last week, Lee, our lead pastor, um, talked about marriage. And there was, you mentioned, Lee, in your sermon last week, or the, you showed from the passage um, that Paul used the word owing or debt type thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you just kind of clarify what that means and what it doesn't mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, let me read um, the verses because I think that's probably helpful to hear that it's what Paul's saying. Mm. Um, so he's talking, about, um, he's talking about marriage and about having sex within marriage. And, uh, and this is what he says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body that yields it to his wife. And um, the, the first thing I think to note in that is the mutuality of that. This is not um, a command that is given to the husband and, and not the wife. This is very much a mutual thing, which ought to tip us off to whatever we say about that word, um, that it ought to be something that happens in conversation and happens um, as you guys mutually seek to love one another. Um, the word that's translated here, duty, uh, has actually got this similar idea of owing a debt to. Uh, but it's really easy to kind of hear that and to think that that's a transactional thing. So I married you, 
therefore you ought to do this, or I bought you flowers and went out for dinner, therefore we ought to do this. And that is not what that's saying at all. It is not transactional, and it is definitely not a reason to um, force or to uh, manipulate sex from your partner in any way. It's more like an owing uh, in a relational sense, a little bit like uh, I owe it to my kids to love them, nurture them, and care for them by virtue of the fact that I am their father and Catherine their mother. And, uh, and Paul's saying there's a similar thing that goes on. By virtue of the fact that you've committed to one another and you've been united together in one flesh, that you are the people that owe to one another that love, intimacy, and care. And in fact, you're the only people that can do that for one another. So, so therefore, do it and don't neglect it. Um, so that's, so that's, what he's, that's what he's saying. It's relational, not transactional. Yeah. Um. So it's okay to say no to things in the marriage? Yeah, look, it's a hypothetical thing for me. I never say no to Cathra. Um, <laughs> uh, so maybe Cathra's worth, uh, it's probably worth kind of getting Cathra to answer that. Um, <laughs> I, not saying that that doesn't happen in, in marriages, actually, because there, there are times uh, for blokes. So I don't want to be insensitive there, but, but for me, that's not been an issue. So. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Sorry, Cathra. Yes, it is okay <laughs> to say no. Um, yeah, and I think the thing is, is there could be a million different reasons why people might want to say no in different circumstances. And and back to what Lee was saying, you know, this is this word debt or owing. It's it's a relational thing. It's not transactional. So, um, you know, I've chosen to marry Lee, and I've in doing that, I've chosen to, or we've chosen to give ourselves to each other um, in a sort of one flesh way. And so that means. In a sense, our bodies are not our own. It's a sacrificial thing to, to do for one another, but that's both ways. That's not just, um, it's not just, you know, my body's not mine, it's Lee's. It's like, no, no, we choose to sacrifice for one another. So um, <coughs> Lee cares about my body as much as um, he cares about his own and, mm. and vice versa. Um, and so how that plays out is going to be very different for, for different marriages. Um, and there could be a, a mismatch in desire, there could be a season of sickness, there could be um, just exhaustion from life circumstances. There could also be, even in marriages, there can be times where it, sex could be painful for somebody or there could be some other reason why it's just not it's just not working at that point. And so all of those reasons are absolutely fine to say no. And and in a sense, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, qualify that in a moment, but just the Patricia Wirakun, interview that was put up on the Established Family Facebook page, she actually just has some really helpful things to say about circumstances where pain or other things might be stopping you from having sex, just to get help like as soon as possible, because a lot of the time, some bigger psychological issues can arise from that that then become much harder to deal with, whereas there could be a really simple fix with mm. something like that, so just to kind of get onto that stuff straight away. But even if any of those things, even if it's just that, that you know, there isn't a, a reason to say no, like there's no pain, there's no tiredness, there's no, then yeah, you can still say no. Like that's mm. that's just, you know, that is absolutely goes without saying. Um, but I think the thing I'd want to say is that that always has to be seen in um, the context of, you know, in a marriage relationship, intimacy is the thing that is going to hold um, a marriage together and yeah. sex is a part of intimacy. It's not the whole of intimacy, but it's a part of intimacy and that in turn builds intimacy and desire. And so if you know your tendency is to pull away from your husband or your wife, 
intimately, either in sex or in other ways, then, you know, talk to them about that and talk to a counsellor about that because otherwise that's just going to build bigger issues. Mm. So it's not that you have to say yes, but if you know that's your tendency, then it, then it's worth communicating to each other yeah. about that and, and working through that. And, and I think Paul, uh, it's really helpful, Catherine, because it just occurred to me, I think Paul is actually writing because there's this natural tendency when there's external threats uh, that our natural tendency is to pull away from being intimate with one another. So in Corinth, like James was saying before, it was this famine that was going on and there was some unhelpful thinking that you shouldn't have uh, sex with your wife. And, and, and so he's just appealing to this natural tendency that we have. But the reality is it's not just famine that threatens our, our intimacy not just sex, there's a whole bunch of things. Having kids is a massive one. Work, if you're working late, there's a whole bunch of things there. So he's just saying, look, pri prioritize one another in love um, in, in this. So mm. far from being transactional, it's a very relational thing that we talk about a lot and we're doing it for the seeking of the good of the other all the time. Yeah, that's great. I think that's, I think the transactional relational side, because that's the gospel. Yeah. Like, it's not transactional. Uh, we're not saved by what we do. Like we don't, we don't do things because we're compelled because God, Jesus saved us and it's a duty. We do it because God loved us and we love God and it's, it's an overflowing. So I think that marriage is always meant to be the model of that relationship as well. That's really helpful. And again, any questions? You go. Can, can, I, can I say something? Yeah. I, I actually sure really want people in our family, in our community, and people like Tim and whatever to ask me how I'm going with this stuff in my marriage. Again, it's another thing that we tend to just keep under the surface but but we need like, like I need my brother Tim to ask me how am I going in in uh, sharing um, with, with Cathra and loving her well and, and doing that but that's not off limits because because this is so important and it's one of the things that we can do for one another um, in community as well so that's right um, I, I, I'll ask this to Lee um, a question came up on the topic of divorce um, through the form or the, the Q&A part um, and the question was, how should Christians lovingly respond to divorce? Um, that's a reality of a broken world. Yeah, yeah. I, I really want to establish to be this place where um, we love and care and point people um, to the forgiveness that there is in Jesus and the awesomeness that there is in following him. And, uh, and that means for me that, that I want established to be a place where people can come here who have experienced divorce, whether or not it's their fault or not, doesn't, doesn't really matter, and they can be loved and cared for and supported and pointed to Jesus. Um, I, I think that is something that the gospel calls us to, and too often uh, Christians and churches have been places where we've been overly judgmental in this area, either uh, just explicitly or, or maybe even just implicitly. And, and so I want to say that first because the reality is we can talk about, and we will talk about the theology of this and the, the technicalities that we see in the Bible and whatever, but, but, but you see what happens when we have that conversation, often we miss the people that get caught in the crossfire, and, and it's the people who really matter. Um, so I want it to be a place where we don't get people caught in the crossfire um, of that because, because actually... Um, in many ways, the, the world that we live in uh, just smooths over divorce um, and says it's, it's not that big of a deal and not that big of an issue. And the reality is if, if people have been affected by divorce, you know that that's not true. And I think the gospel means that churches can be a place where we uh, 
acknowledge sin and we go, this is what happens in a broken world. This really impacts people, um, but yet uh, we have got a God who understands what it is to um, actually have broken relationship. Like uh, Jeremiah 3 talks about uh, God divorcing Israel in one sense because they've been, they've been adulterous. Um, and so he knows what it is to be rejected and he understands that. And I think that part of the gospel means that we can also point people um, to a God who understands. Mm-hmm. And, and then by grace and love, we, we work that out. And there's a whole bunch of practical things that I don't think we've got time to get into. But yeah, but, right. but yeah that's what I feel. Let, let's make established that kind of place. Yeah. Amen. And lastly, we've got five minutes left. Um, a question came up from the first sermon that we looked at. Um, a few questions, actually. More along the lines of, what do I do if I've failed sexually? And what are some practical ways I can flee from sexual immorality? So just to wrap up, I might just go down the line, give different perspectives. If Lee, can, you can define sexual immorality just from your sermon yeah, again. Yeah. Um, and just go around, down this, the, the line, talk about what are some practical ways we each find fleeing from sexual immorality. Yeah, um, sexual immorality is a catch-all phrase in the Bible to describe all physical and mental sexual relational things outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it means in the Bible. Um, And what that means is actually all of us have failed sexually, I can imagine, because Jesus says if we look at a woman lustfully, um, then it's as good as as doing that. And and that's one of the things that he affirms. And, And I think that's a good starting point because, again, Sexual immorality is one of these things that Christians can get self-righteous about. Mm. And it's really important just to go, no, no, we've all failed in this way. But like with all failure, um, particularly for, there's two things I want to say for the Christian and for the person who's not yet a Christian. For the Christian, um, you've got 1 John 1, 9. uh, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and good to forgive our sins. So confess our sin to God. Actually know that. And there's no sin, whether it's sexual or whatever, that sits outside of the grace of God on the cross. Absolutely none. And, uh, and Satan's going to keep on trying to tempt you with guilt and shame and whatever and not to confess that. Um, but we know that he is good and we can confess our sin to him. Um, if you're someone who's still exploring Jesus, I think what I'd want to say to you is none of that, none of that actually excludes you from coming and having a real relationship with Jesus. In fact, um, if you confess to Jesus uh, your rebellion against him just in a bigger sense and put your trust in him, he'll actually start to deal with a lot of that stuff for you and a lot of the guilt and shame that you might have around that and start to heal you and put you back together again. Um, that's, that's something that I've experienced personally. Um, okay. yeah. Catherine? Um, so in terms of like more f- fleeing from sexual immorality, I think it's going to be different for each of us because I think we're different people and we're in different life stages. But for me, it's not something I particularly struggle with, like in a physical sense, personally. But I don't think that, therefore, I should think that I'm immune to this as a as a issue. Um, I think for me, temptations probably more likely would be more likely to come in a, like a relational sense. Um, and so, for me, as a married person, to counter that, I just need to pour time, energy, and effort into my intimacy with Lee in building our marriage as a strong relationship where intimacy sexually and otherwise is is so strong that there is no way for temptation to make its way in. And I think the the way that I suppose I'm tempted is that 
sometimes I just can't be bothered to be intimate. Like, I just kind of go, I'm too tired and I'd rather just sit and look at my phone than talk to him or, you know, that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? Like, there's just times <laughs> when I just can't be bothered and I've had too much physical affection, affection from my children in the day and right now I'd just like some personal space. Yeah. But I also know that um, to love... Lee, but not only just to love Lee, but for our marriage to stay strong, which is what I want and what I'm committed to, then to make our marriage a priority and to make intimacy in our marriage a priority is the way, I suppose, to, to fend that off and to have a strong marriage. And, and there's, there's two things, quickly. God gives us rules in relationship not to smash our fun. It's actually for our good, and it's really helpful to know that, and it's really helpful to know... Um, who God is and actually pour into intimacy and relationship with God, not just your spouse or not just friends. Like, like actually know him because the more that you know him, the more that you'll see the heart behind the rules that he gives are actually for your good. And, and we need to wrestle with that. And the longer that you uh, spend time with God, the easier that becomes. Yeah. I feel like I'm repeating myself a bit, but um, I'm probably speaking more to guys here, to be honest. But just that intimacy, that closeness of relationship, asking people asking other guys how they're going with things like that, I think is so key. And there's a good chance that it's an issue in some way, shape or form. So assuming that and just saying, how is this an issue for you? How can we help? And there are actually, and I don't think it's the perfect way to do it, but there are actually online systems. So if we're talking about practical things we can do, um, one that kind of saw my, my mind is a thing called Covenant Eyes, which will actually keep like an online accountability, which you can actually back, back up relationally as well. So that's probably the best thing I'd suggest. I think, yeah, like Jim said, obviously quite different depending on your gender. Um, but that doesn't mean that that women don't still struggle with um, with lust and things like that as well. Um, so I think we've got to be careful not to generalise. I think growing up I had this picture in my head that it was, that, that the world was quite innocent and also that it was something that mostly guys struggled with, but actually that's so not true. Um, so for the women out there... Um, make sure you have people who you can go to, people who um, you are accountable to. Um, I know, and that's whether you're single or in a relationship or married, single or married, um, because because it affects all of us equally. Whether you're, um, yeah, whether whether you're struggling with that um, or or even having instances of falling into it, make sure you have people who you can go to and talk to. So I know for me, I find it really um, really great to have people who I can call when I'm struggling with stuff, people who are just, people who know everything about my life. I think most of the time, the instances, kind of like what Catherine was saying, that the, these things become issues is when we're, we're struggling um, in a relationship or if you're single, it's when you're usually when you're struggling with loneliness. Um, so really invest in relationships with with people you love and trust um, and don't fall into the temptation of um, being like the world and pursuing our, the, the hyper-individualism of our culture that tells us we can do everything on our own and we're fine on our own um, because it's by isolating ourselves that I think we can really easily fall into those traps, whether we're male or female. Um, yeah. It's really helpful. Um, I think for me, I'm moderating, but I'm just going to step in and um, be a part of it for a second. <laughs> Um, something that always jumps into my head, it's not a Bible verse, but it's the song Before the Throne. I've got above, I know that song. Um, but there's this line where he says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I put out a look and see him there, 
the one who put an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Um, because that wasn't. Yeah, because the just, because God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Because um, I think it's so easy to beat ourselves up over our sin and act like we're not saved by grace. Um, not to say that we cheapen grace and we don't grieve our sin. But I think it's just one of the most freeing things is knowing that there's no sin past, present or future that the blood of Christ isn't effective for. Um, so I always come back to that, I think, for me. But you want to give these guys a round of applause? They're very vulnerable. <laughs> He'll feel weird getting a round of applause, but takes vulnerability. We're going to set up here. I'm just going to pray again. Um, and then we're going to sing a song and we have dinner together. So get keen for that. I'm going to pray. Um, didn't it help me? Father God, we thank you so much um, that your grace is enough for us. Um, that is, like I said, there's no sin past, present or future that has more power than your cross. Um, Father, help us be a church that navigates um, these things well. Help us have grace when we need to have grace. Help us know to, and to encourage or correct when we need to, Father. Father, thank you that, like Lee said and um, the rest of the panel said, we're not in this alone, that we need each other to speak into our lives. Father, we pray that we can be a church family that does that, that we can be seeking to glorify you with every aspect of our lives um, in every single way we can. Father, help us do that. Help us respond to you now in song boldly and uh, with all joy um, because we know we, we worship a God who, who loves us and has forgiven us. And that's on offer for all of us here today, Father. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together.